Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Those were verses 5 through 9 of Psalm 116 and verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 117, which are the two psalms appointed for today, Thursday, September the 23rd, 2021. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're today continuing our look at the life of Elisha, the prophet, to the northern kingdom of Israel after the separation of the two kingdoms of Judah, based in Jerusalem, and Israel, which is based in Samaria. That Those are the ten lost tribes the, the kingdom of uh, Israel is. And so we're going to be in 2 Kings 9, verses 1 to 16, in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and then Matthew 6, 1 to 6, and then skipping forward to verses 16 to 18. So... We're going to be looking at um, a change in leadership in the northern kingdom, and that change in leadership is going to be heralded by Elisha sending another one of the prophets up north and said, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now, Ramoth Gilead is the place where um, Ahab, the wicked king, married to Jezebel, had been killed in battle after he had uh, convinced the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, they had begun to form sort of an alliance, and he had convinced him to go into battle dressed like a king, while Ahab decided, no, I'm going to go into into battle not dressed like a king. So he really set Jehoshaphat at risk. He was that kind of a coward and that kind of a man uh, that he would have done such a thing as that. And so now he had been killed at Ramoth Gilead by the Syrian army. And here they are again fighting the Syrian army. But his son is now the king in um, in Israel. There, and so what Elisha does is sends this son of the prophet to Ramoth Gilead where the battle had been. Now the, the other king, Joram, had been wounded in that same battle and he is, he is um, receiving treatment for that in Samaria. But Jehu, who you're going to meet in just a second, was the commander of the army. And so Elisha says, when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Now, most of the time, we're just that, that uh, the writers will just refer to Jehu as the son of Nimshi. And it's largely because they don't want to get him confused with Jehoshaphat, because it says here that he's the son of Jehoshaphat, but he's not the son of Jehoshaphat, who had previously been king down in the southern kingdom. So normally, the writer would just refer to him as the son of Nimshi. He says, go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him into an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Sounds a little sketchy, doesn't it? It sounds like it's going to be an odd moment. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he became, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said to which of us all? And he said, To you, commander. So he arose and went into the house. The young man poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you the king of the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I'll cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. I mean, he did exactly what he is supposed to do. And this is the fulfillment of an earlier word that had been given by Elijah to Ahab about the destruction of the house of Ahab, that all the men would perish and that Jezreel would be the place where Jezebel would die and that the dogs would eat her. So he's just completing that prophecy. And now he is anointing Jehu to be the not just the commander over the army of Israel, but also to be the king over Israel. And so when Jehu comes out of that little meeting to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well. Why did this mad fellow come to you? And I'm sure he looked like that because he fled. And he said to them, you know this fellow and his talk. And they said, that's not true. Tell us now, there's got to be more to it than that. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, so hurriedly, as soon as they hear it, every man of them took his garment and put it under him in the bare steps and blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. So they put their 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 garments under him so that he's not on the bare steps anymore. It sounds like, doesn't it, the triumphal entry of Jesus when they spread their garments before him as he comes into the city. And so they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now this is in Ramoth Gilead. And so Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, see, that's where it does goes to that again, conspired against Joram, the king. Now Joram was all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, the king of Syria. But Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Don't let anybody go up there and tell Joram or Jezebel particularly, what's going on here. And so Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So he had come. There was a beginning of an alliance between the two kingdoms at that time. And so the king of of Judah, so based in Jerusalem, has gone up or to Jezreel to visit Joram there as he recovers from his injuries from the battle. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus is going to tell us to do things in secret. Don't make a big deal out of everything you do. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. The key part of this is to be seen by them, right? I mean, so it's intentionally seeking the attention of others when you're doing something. Uh, Practicing righteousness would mean fulfilling commandments, doing acts of charity and things like that. And so here Jesus has in mind in order to be seen by them. That's the most important part of this. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to do anything where another person might see you. It, 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 it's what's the intention. And what Jesus is getting at here is, is that to, the intention is you do these things in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You get your earthly reward, and, and you got what you wanted, which was to be seen by other people. This They want you to be to to see you you want them to see you as a righteous person you want them to see you as a as a good person thus when you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be prayed praised by others truly i say to you they've received your reward but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he goes on to say the same thing about praying. 
don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners. They may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And, and I'm sure we've all been around people who, who clearly, whenever they're going to pray in public, have practiced their prayers quite a bit before they come into public to do that. Um, I used to be part of a group where there was a guy who would pray these eloquent but huh kind of prayers uh, of spiritual warfare he would be most of the prayer would be telling god exactly what god needed to do as though he knew and and he would go on and on with this stuff and then somebody else would close the prayer and and that the prayer time and the and that would just be lord you know everything we don't let it be done according to your will. I mean, it's it, there's no reason for you to be the guy who prays all the strategy because you can't possibly know the strategy. It's, it's, it's far better for us when we're praying, especially when we're praying in public with other people, to be humble before him, to acknowledge his supremacy in all things. And so we, we're then humbling ourselves before him rather than trying to get other people to come up to us afterwards and say, wow. Wow, that was an incredible prayer. And Jesus commends a specific prayer, right? At one other point, well, two, actually, he commends the Lord's Prayer, certainly, and then he commends the, the tax collector's prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and our prayers need to be more modeled on the simplicity of that prayer rather than the, the eloquent prayers and the, the uh, braggadocious prayers prayers of others. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who's in secret will reward you. And so always what we need to be doing is doing these things to please Him, doing these things because He's commanded these things to be done, not because we want to other people to, to think well of us. Um, we need to do these things in order that the Lord gets the glory, not us. In the First Corinthians passage, Paul is continuing this this uh, discourse that he's having about the sexual immorality among the people in um, in the church at Corinth. They're putting up with a man sleeping with his father's wife, and they're 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 not dealing with sexual sin in their midst. And it's I'll have some things to say about it as we go along. He says, "Look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful." All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. And that can be true of of all kinds of things, right? It can be true of food. It can be true of alcohol. It can be true even of good things like food, for instance. Or it could be true of things like exercise. You know, you can get too much exercise is the reality. You can overtrain. You can do these things that actually end up tearing down your body. I have a son who, who had been anorexic and he would use exercise, which is a good thing, but but that exercise would be the way that he used to to make sure that he didn't gain weight. And and so there's all kinds of different things that are good for us, but we can't allow those things to dominate us. 
And he goes on to say, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And part of the reason Paul's going to talk about all these things is because there were some ideas current in the church, and we see this in John's gospel as well, where other people are coming in and they're telling them that the body doesn't actually matter, that, that sins of the body are, are not a problem because it's they don't bother your spirit. And Paul here is going to speak into that. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Because there were people who were saying, no, that's not doing any harm. It's the same kind of argument we hear today, that, that, that sexual immorality between two consenting adults, yeah, yeah, it hurts if you're married to somebody else, but but sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage. I mean, that's the clear definition that, that the church has used throughout antiquity, and it's the, church, it's the same definition that Paul's insisting on here. So it goes beyond the church. It goes back into the Old Testament that everybody would have known that any sex outside of marriage would be sexual immorality. And Paul says, yeah, it's a problem. And yeah, you might get away with it, but it's not good for you. It's it doesn't help you in the least, and, and it does cause you to be separated from God. He said, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. The body means something. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body is. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. <laughs> and what's the difference, literally? I mean, if you want to think about that for a second, what's the difference between having sex with a prostitute and having sex with another person? There's none. It's, Paul's not just condemning sex with prostitutes here. That's, that's not remotely what he's saying. He's just saying about anybody else other than your spouse. So it's not prostitution he's condemning. It's, it's sexual immorality, which is sex outside of marriage. He says, do you not know that he's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. And so that's a long time understanding of things. They didn't just come into the church in what people believe would be the Puritan era. He says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And what a beautiful picture Paul's painted there with that, that, that we're to be one spirit, one body, one everything with the Lord. He is supposed to be our everything. We're supposed to see him as we would our spouse. And so when we do these things, then, then we're actually cheating on him. We're committing spiritual adultery even if we just think it's our body that's involved in this action. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Uh, do we even know what that is? Does the, can the church even define sexual immorality today? I mean, I think we have a really hard time with that because we don't want to define it the way that it's defined in Scripture. We'd prefer that it be defined some other way because then we would have to tell people too often what you're doing's wrong. And we don't like to do that. We don't like it because, well, that person wouldn't think as highly of me, and, and maybe it's not loving for me to tell them that because that relationship seems to be so good. It's, it's not not loving. In fact, it's actually loving. It's saying, I care about your eternal soul enough to say this to you. I'm sorry that it would keep you from being perfectly happy today, engaged in what you're engaged in, but the problem is that, that you're um, risking eternity for this. And so it's a loving thing to confront that, as long as it's confronted in the right way, and as long as it's clear that we understand what sexual immorality is, and that we don't focus on one form of it and leave all the others off and say, well, that's all okay, because whatever, it, the church can be accused of focusing on certain types of sexual sin and not having anything to say about other types of sexual sin. That's the problem that we can come up against, but it's where we lose our moral authority is not on that sin 
that we lost our moral authority way before that because we were approved of a great many other things that Paul would have absolutely said are sexual immorality, and you need to take that person out of the church. So if we can't condemn those, then on what grounds can we stand to condemn any other? And he says, don't you know that a <clears throat> uh, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And one of the ways we glorify God in our bodies is to abstain from sin. You know, but, but that requires us to know, and it requires us to be obedient to and listen to the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit's not going to tell us that it's okay to do things that Scripture tells us are not okay. It's important that in all things we decide that our main goal is to glorify God. If we kept that as our main goal, Christians would be far better people, and the church would be the most attractive thing in the entire universe.